right, why don't you open up to Ephesians chapter 1. You can just get used to that for the next couple of months. We'll be in chapter 1 for probably five or six more weeks. Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Have you ever had a moment where when you look at creation, or you see something in front of you, or maybe for you as parents, you hear the joy of your children, you're automatically and immediately in this place where you erupt with praise. Does that happen to anybody in here? This is a picture, it's hard to see up here and get the full glory of it, but this is a picture of a sunset off of the island of Maui. My family and I had the blessing and opportunity to go for a short vacation uh, at the generosity of my mother-in-law, and so we went, and one of the nights it was this, it was beautiful, and I found myself standing on the lanai on the balcony and simply just saying, praise you, God. Praise you, God. When we see the goodness and the glory and the grace of God in all his majesty, we can't help but utter forth praise. As we saw last week in Ephesians, Paul in his letter to the church at Ephesus, he knew that this fledgling church was struggling to keep out bad theology and to deal with division in its midst. And so he begins not with his usual openings of theology that we find at the beginnings of most of his letters, But he actually begins with something that usually is at the end. He begins with what's called a doxology. Everybody say doxology. Doxology. Praise. He begins with praise to God. And in so doing, I believe that Paul hopes to refocus the eyes of the church, the people of Ephesus, upon Jesus and upon the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit so that he might be able to rebuild them anew and unify them so that they might carry out the work described at the end of the book, chapters 4 through 6. And this reinforces the point we made last week, that the first mark of a healthy church, according to Paul, is this, that Jesus is at the core. 
this section from 3 to 14 in, our, uh, in, in the original Greek is 202 words and one sentence. In the original Greek, Paul didn't have periods, he didn't have commas, he had one long thought of praise. That's how much praise he wanted to give the Lord. And in this section, from 3 to 14, Paul refers to Jesus 15 times. And he uses the phrase, en Christo, in Christ, 11 times. And he speaks of the blessings that come to those that are in Christ. Now before we get into this text and we look at the glory and the majesty of our Father God, I want to go back and I want to look a little bit more at the background of Ephesus to paint the picture of why this is so important for Paul to speak and why it's important for us to know today. In Ephesus, it was a huge city of spiritual cults. You guys remember this picture? Yay, Washington, D.C. No, it's not Washington, D.C. Okay. Which you could say is also a cult, but that's okay. Different, <laughs> different story there. Okay. This is the Temple of Diana, or Wonder Woman as we know her, right? The Temple of Diana of Artemis. And this is one of many temples. There were temples to Artemis and Isis and Sabeel and Dionysus and the Caesars and many more. One of the major trades was temple sacrifices that came out of these temples, little baubles like statues and magical amulets that would keep away evil spirits. And there were certain underlying theologies that ran this system and kind of undergirded it and kept it going. And I want you to write these down because these are going to be core to going throughout Ephesians. The theology of the mystery religion started with this, the astral powers controlled one's fate. Now, what's an astral power? Uh, An astral power is the stars, right? The fates, the lowercase g gods, okay? You know what I mean, lowercase g, not a capital G like our God? Lowercase g gods, the astral powers, the powers of the air, they controlled one's fate. If you remember this statue of Artemis that we looked at last week, that beautiful woman that has... um, bull testicles around her chest there. Uh, It's very, very odd. She's got these grape clusters and then the bull testicles. And between those, if you look close enough, she's got the signs of the zodiac. And this is the statue that people would worship in Ephesus. And the signs of the zodiac were there because the people of the mystery cults lived in constant fear that if they did not please the gods or even one specific god, then the fates would lay out for them a life that would be negative. They were in constant search for what the plan of these gods was for their life. And they were fearful all the time that if they made one false misstep, that God would smash them because they hadn't done what the God wanted. If you think about it, this is still very much alive and well in Christianity, is it not? This is how most contemporary Christians that I know operate with God. Do I choose this career or this career? I want to choose the right one because if I don't, it will mean the ruin of my life. I want to choose this person or this person because this person hopefully is the soulmate God intends for me. And if I don't, it will ruin my life. God, what's your plan for me? We still operate in this same mentality. We may not use the zodiac, but the astral powers control our fate, not Jesus Christ. That's how we operate. We may believe differently, but the way we walk it out shows that our underlying theology is different. The second thing that uh, is underlying these mystery religions is that God's constantly related contractually. A few weeks ago, I talked about the difference between a contractual relationship 
and a covenantal relationship. A covenantal relationship is that you bond to one another and you state to each other that you are in the relationship. You are committed. And what that does is that opens up room for mistakes to be made and growth to occur. That's why marriage is a covenant bond. I say to Kelly, I am with you no matter what. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, you have the ability to make mistakes and we both can grow and I can make mistakes too. This is why with the Israelites, they were in a covenant commitment with Yahweh. And so when they made a mistake, it wasn't, you're no longer an Israelite. They were then able to go take a sacrifice to the temple and say, Lord, I need to correct the sin that I've acted within. Okay? That's covenantal. But the astral powers and the mystery religions, they operated in a contractual relationship. Because you see, these gods were very capricious. They acted just like humans. They would become deceitful and manipulate and become evil to accomplish their purposes. If a follower of these mystery gods wanted to get in good graces with the god, then they would have to say the right magical incantation or prayer. They would have to act and do the right sacrifices. They would have to be close to the proper cult leader. And if they did these things, they would be seen as popular with the god. If they did not do the right things, they would be very unpopular and even leading to death or destruction in life. It was completely contractual. To serve the gods properly, you had to always be perfect so that they gave you the future you desired. Does that sound familiar? It does. It's very much like how we operate in contemporary Christianity. Third, The theology of the mystery religions was that one must be initiated into the mysteries. The followers of these religions believed that to truly be good enough for the gods, they needed to be initiated into the mysteries. Now what this means is that you would go to the temple and what you do in the temple was very secret. Okay, It's kind of like the Mormon religion today. You don't know what occurs in the temple because visitors can't show up. And what you do in that temple is you operate in mysterious spiritual ways so that you can be initiated into the rites of the mystery. And so for one to truly be good enough, you had to have special spiritual knowledge. Only the most spiritual in these religions could foretell the future. Only the most spiritual in these religions could utter ecstatic utterances of tongues. And they interpret the, the, the decisions of the fates. The idea of tongues originated in the Greek culture, such as the Oracle of Delphi, where people would go to understand the future that the gods had for them. The Oracle would utter ecstatic utterances that no one else could state, and then the men around her would say what she was actually saying in order to give the foretelling to the person of what their future held. It was this kind of theological and spiritual environment that Paul and later Timothy stepped into to teach the truth of Jesus Christ that will speak in direct opposition to these beliefs. And so we have to understand these because as Paul writes, he's not just writing out into the air, he's addressing a specific situation. And he's addressing the fact that many of the Christians in the church at Ephesus were still operating under this kind of a theology as opposed to the truth of the theology of Yahweh and of his son, Jesus Christ. And so the first thing Paul clearly states here in this section is this. Write this down. Our God is worthy of praise because he alone 
is God. Our God is worthy of praise because he alone is God. In opposition to the ecumenical beliefs of the Ephesians that there were many gods and that Diana was the chief mother goddess, the core of the Hebrew faith is that Yahweh alone is God and he's God the Father. The Israelites, good Israelites, would say the great Shema every day. What's the great Shema? It comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ichad. How do we say it in English? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now we hear this in our Western culture and we immediately say one. Yeah, we're monotheist. We worship one God. But the core of this statement is not actually about monotheism. It may be part of the statement, but it's not the core. The word ichad, or one, in Hebrew, it means unique. It means special. And the core of this statement is actually about the the, uh, truth that Yahweh is unique. And Paul's point in starting with this massive statement of praise that covers verses 3 through 14 is that if the people of Ephesus truly, truly understood and grasped how different Yahweh is from their other gods— It would destroy the false theologies that enslave them. And I believe this is very true for us today in the contemporary church. If we truly understand who Yahweh is, who the God we serve is, and what he has done in his son Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will start to understand Yahweh is completely different than that theology I just put up on the board. We will no longer walk in fear. We will no longer walk in shame and guilt we will understand that God is far different than the capricious and vindictive gods of the Greek and Roman systems. And so to do this, he paints the picture of the triune God. One true God made of three persons. What you see here in 3 through 14 is first, the Father is the source of blessing. He's the origin and the purpose of the purpose and the plan. The Son is the means by which the blessing comes about to the world. And all of these blessings are bestowed upon the followers of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We serve a very unique God, three in one. And this is core to our faith. It's core to our belief system. Because each person of the Trinity plays an integral part in salvation. And if it weren't the Trinity, God would be completely different, not just in structure, but also in character. Notice that he starts there in verse 3 with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, great, he's the Father. But then he says, Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He goes on to state in verse 5 that he, the Father, has predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. This idea of God the Father is in complete contrast and opposition to the idea of Diana as mother, but this is what Paul is basically stating. He's stating, write this down, our God, secondly, is worthy of praise because he is a good father. Not only because he's a unique God, but because he is a good father. Again, the Trinity is not just unique in regards to structure. There have been a million different tries at trying to diagram it out and show it what it is. There's been a million different metaphors. It's like an egg, the yolk, the white, and the shell, or an apple, the flesh, the meat, and the core. Or maybe it's like It's like water. It can be water, liquid, water, gas, vapor, 
or ice, solid. All of these actually break down when you try and look at them because our God alone is unique. Even using some of those metaphors is actually heresy because they border on old heresies of what God is, what the Trinity is. And so what we need to look at is not trying to figure out academically what the Trinity looks like because we never will, right? Have you guys figured that out yet? We're never going to figure out the Trinity? Rather than doing that, what we have to understand is why the Trinity is so important, okay? Notice the love between the Father and the Son. In verse 6, Jesus is called the Beloved. Now think about this with me for a second, okay? This is going to be like Back to the Future when Michael J. Fox sees himself and it makes his brain hurt, okay? Everybody just go with me, all right? This might hurt your brain a bit, but think about this for a second. The Father has always eternally been the Father. And the Son has always eternally been the Son. If it were any other way, our God would be completely different in character. Let me explain what I mean. In this broken and fallen world, so many of us have a problem with the idea of God as Father. Maybe you're one of the blessed few who had a father that came pretty close to the idea of Jesus in his love for you. But most of us transfer the father wounds and abuse that we may have suffered by errant human men, just like I'm sure my children will, because I'm an errant human man, and we transfer those onto God. Maybe it's even just the abandonment or the distance that we felt from our own fathers and authority figures. We take that and we transfer that onto God. We transfer that onto the church. We transfer that onto the authority figures in the church. And this doxology of praise suddenly becomes a dirge of mourning because God, well, he's like my dad. But think with me for a moment of what Paul is actually trying to get across. If ever there was a moment where the father was not eternally the father and the son was not eternally the son, then this morphs God into a different kind of God. Because God, at some point, the Father, would have had to have been alone. And he would have had to create out of selfish motives. All other gods of other religions, including the mystery religions of ancient Greece and Rome, have at their head, or the top, a God who existed eternally past, alone. So why on earth did the earth get created in those mythologies? One day, that God, for selfish reasons, said, I want to create humanity for my purposes. And their purposes were always out of selfishness. For example, in the Babylonian creation myth known as the Enuma Elish, the god Marduk created mankind for slaves. That's why we're here. We're slaves of the gods. Does that sound like the mystery religions? For the gods' selfish purposes. But for Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the true God, his innate motivation is, has always been, and will always be what? Love. See, he's the eternal father giving eternal love to the eternal beloved, the son. And just as that love flows out of him to the son because it has to, that's who our God is. It flows out of the sun into the creation of this world. And that's why John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the one who created this world. The love of the Father flowed through the sun into the creation. Why? That there might be relationship. That God 
would be able to love, not so that he would receive love, but so that the love that outflows from him would have some place to land. If we think about this, this is massive in comparison to every other religion. Every other religion, the gods act out of what? Selfish or selfless purposes? Selfish. Our religion alone, our God alone is whole in his love and selflessness. The fourth century theologian, Gregory of Nyssa, said this, The Father is never without the Son, for it is impossible that glory should be without radiance, as it is impossible that the lamp would be without brightness. Our God is innately love, and it is innately natural to him that his love would pour out upon the Son. If God did not love, he would not be the Father, and if the Son did not return that love to the Father in obedience, he would not be the Son. Our God exists innately, always, forever, in the midst of love and obedience. Without the Trinity, this could not happen. And in the midst of this relationship, then, the Son reflects the Father in that just as the Father is innately outpouring of his love, Jesus must do the same. He must pour out his love to others, whether or not they're willing to accept it. And is this not the heart of the gospel? That our God opens his arms to a world that turns its back on him and he says, I love you. Do you want to love me in return? And whether or not they do it, not out of contractual obligation, whether or not they do it, he keeps that love there for eternity future. And each one of us within our Finite lives on this earth have a chance to respond to that love. And the Bible says then comes death and then comes the judgment. And so our lives are a time to respond to that innate love. We have to understand this if we understand our God. And I believe if we actually understand this and we put it to play in our lives, it will begin to transform us. Because think with me for a second, how many of your decisions... And my decisions and your attitudes and my attitudes and your actions and my actions, how many of them are driven not by love, but by fear? If you think about that, it takes a great deal of our time and energy to operate out of fear and not out of love. And this is the difference between the mystery religions of Greece and of Ephesus in Turkey. Those are operated out of fear, but we, Christians, are to operate out of love. And so that love poured out through the Son onto us. And in the rest of the section, what Paul is saying is that our God is worthy of praise because he has blessed his children in Christ. Our God is worthy of praise because he's unique, because he's a good father, and because he has blessed his children in Christ. Paul is trying to get the eyes of the church of Ephesus refocused on this truth, away from the things that are causing division and the things that are causing bad theology. He's trying to get them to focus on the truth of who God is and what he has given to us. 
And so the love of the Father has overflowed through the Son. And we praise the Father because of what he has done through his Son, Jesus, which has resulted in the numerous blessings. Now Paul says that they've resulted in blessings. Notice this with me at the end of verse 3. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, confession time. How many of you have read this before and you just kind of gloss over that phrase, heavenly places? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay. What does that mean, heavenly places? How are we blessed in the heavens? What does that do for us right now? Well, there's strong debate if you go and you look at traditional theology around this phrase on what Paul was intending. But I think personally, it seems to me that if we look at just Ephesians, we can figure out a general idea of what he's thinking. Let's take a look at the four places otherwise that it's used, that this same word in the Greek is used. First, look with me at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. Okay, he's speaking of the power of God, and he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Same word in the Greek there, okay? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, okay? So we know that it's where the resurrected Christ dwells, all right? Chapter 2, verse 6. Go and look at that one with me. Now we learn that not only is Jesus there, the Father is there, but then it says in verse 6 of chapter 2, and Christ has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but I don't see how this is literally true. Look around. Are you guys in heaven right now? Okay, I want my money back, if that's the case. (laughs) Right? You look around and you go, wait a minute. I'm not seated in heavenly places. If I were, the seat would be more comfortable. (laughs) Right? So what does he mean that we're seated with him in the heavenly places? Well, I believe that this is very, very important to understand. That we as Christians actually have a dual citizenship and a dual reality that we exist in at all times. We are in the world physically, but citizens of this heavenly realm with Christ. All at the same time. In other words, right now, this assembly that is here in Straub Middle School, seated on hard chairs in the middle of Salem, is just as much assembled in the presence of Jesus Christ, the King, in the heavens. Okay, confession time again. How many of you had that in mind when you strolled in here this morning? Right? Most of us are like, oh man, I gotta get to the gym and sit on the hard chair and I gotta listen, right? No, literally, when a local church gathers together in the name of Jesus, it is not only there in the present but it's also there in the spiritual, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And I guarantee you, by the word of God, that if he could open our eyes to see it, we would hear singing of the angels. We would see the king seated on his throne, just like Isaiah 6. We would totally change the way that we worship on a Sunday morning. No longer would it be, boy, do I, I hope that, you know, Fred over here doesn't hear me saying, Holy, holy, holy. We would be, holy, holy, holy. You're wondrous and mighty, we'd be saying. 
We would be laying down at the feet of Jesus. We would be serving each other in amazing ways. We would be laying down our egos and our attitudes and our opinions to serve as we've been served by Jesus. We would not be sitting in critical nature going, I wonder what God's going to say to me today and if I agree with it. We'd be going, no, teach me. Help me to understand. Help me to open my heart to the word that's spoken. In comparing the assembly of Israel that was under the old covenant with the assembly of Jesus that's under the new, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That word assembly in the Greek is ekklesia, It's also translated, if you have an NASB or NIV, to the church. The church of the firstborn who are already enrolled in heaven. You see, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have to wait for death to go to heaven. You are already enrolled in heaven by your very presence in the assembly of the firstborn. And he's working in you righteousness to be made perfect. And the job of the church here, it says, is to proclaim to the coming ages, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We'll look at chapter 3, verse 10. We'll get another example of what he's talking about here. 3.10, this word heavenlies, what does it mean? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, wait a minute. So we got Jesus seated on his throne. We got the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit. We got the assembly of the firstborn. What are principalities and powers and authorities doing, especially if this has the intimation that these are demonic and negative? What are they doing there? Well, we'll have to look at this in a second here. Chapter 6, verse 12 gives us a little bit better understanding. Go to chapter 6, verse 12, and we'll look at the last place. He uses the same Greek word. Chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So let's put this all together. This heavenly realm in which we've been blessed is where God and the resurrected Christ dwell, as well as the place where the powers of darkness currently operate. It's the place where we, as the assembly of the firstborn, are enrolled and seated with Christ in warfare against the cosmic darkness of the powers that accuse us and accuse God. So when we go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and we read that he has blessed us in the heavenly places, Paul is not just going, gee, isn't this nice? You're blessed. I'm too blessed to be stressed. Hashtag blessed, right? That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is God is doing war. He's doing battle. And part of how he's doing battle to destroy these beings and these demonic forces that accuse him to the world, that he's not a good God, is that he blesses us the followers of Christ, the disciples of Christ, in the midst of this spiritual realm at which he's at war. The blessing is a dagger to the heart of the accuser. 
And so how has he blessed us? Let's take a look at this idea of blessing because you see, as the world looks towards the church and sees how we have individually and corporately been blessed, what they see is they see a preview, a preview of the heavenly realities that will be in fully in place when Christ fully rules and reigns and has reconciled all of heaven and earth. That's what the church is to be, a preview of those things. And so these gracious gifts that the Father has bestowed on us through the Son are not simply future benefits, but they're a present reality right now that he has given to us and anyone who desires to become part of the assembly of the firstborn. And in each of these, Paul states clearly how different it is to follow Christ over and against the mysterious gods of Ephesus. And so today, we're going to cover and look at, in the rest of the time I have left, the first four of what I see as seven blessings in the heavenly realm. And then Patrick is going to teach you on the last three when he teaches. Okay? So first, Paul states that the first and second blessings that we receive are these. First, it's that we are chosen to be holy and blameless. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And secondly, that goes right along with it, we are predestined for adoption. Now next week, I'm going to take on the topic of predestination and God's sovereignty, and we're going to look at that in depth. But today, I just want to go through these to understand what Paul is trying to say. This kind of loving and committed relationship was totally foreign to the people of Ephesus in comparison to their mystery religions. As I said earlier, in those religions, the fates controlled the lives of the people without any concern for the people, but just doing as they pleased. There wasn't any really real relationship. But see, the God of the Bible, he does things for relationship, for his glory and his people's good. And so the people of Ephesus and the surrounding towns, they lived in fear constantly, not of God who chose them and predestined them, but a God that wanted to use them and then squash them like bugs if they disagreed with him or did what, they, what uh, he or she didn't want them to do. But Paul states something so different here, that the true God works in a totally different way. This God, Yahweh, is a God of faithful covenant commitment. In fact, Paul says he chose us and predestined us. We are his family, not just slaves. Just as he chose Israel to be his out of all the nations that were disobedient and rebellious in sin, he has chosen the church now to be his family, his people. Notice that Paul says he chose us. And most of us stop there. We go, okay, great, I'm chosen, right? Aren't I cool? He chose me for his team. But notice that he says he chose us in him. I could very easily make the choosing about me, but he chose us in him, the body of Christ. And this is so cool. When did he choose to do it? Notice that, before the foundation of the world. That word world there in the Greek is the word cosmos. It means all of the created universe. You see, the believers in Ephesus they were struggling with the idea that the stars controlled their fate. And Paul comes along here and says, dude, before the stars even existed, your God loved you. Do you really think that you have to operate in fear? Before the stars even existed, your God loved you. The zodiac doesn't set your future. 
The false gods don't set your future. The Father God who loves you, he walks with you. And he's chosen you. And not only did he choose us to be his as a husband does his bride, but he adopted us to be his children. In the ancient Greek world, this was a well-known, understood term. If you were adopted, you took on the same rights and responsibilities as a biological child. There was no difference between your biological children and your adopted children. And notice that it starts out in verse 3 of chapter 1, that he is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does it say when we're adopted? Who does that turn Jesus into in relationship to us? What is he to us? He's our brother. You see, Paul's trying to get the people to understand that it's not just that God the Father loves the Son because the Son is just so perfect. The Father casts his love upon all of us that are adopted into his family that are imperfect. And he cares for us just as much as he cares for his Son. In fact, he cares for us so much that he was willing to send his only begotten Son to die for your sins and mine. And he planned this before the world ever existed. And this idea of a God that loves his people this much would have pierced the heart of the Ephesians, and I hope it pierces our heart this morning. The God we serve is not some capricious God trying to manipulate and puppet master us and turn us into doing his bidding. But he's a God that responds to us in love even though we are unlovable and faithless. Even though we are rebellious to him and we say, I I don't need you. He's trying to tell them that when people step out of themselves and into him, into Christ, and into the assembly of his firstborn, that they will see the loving and committed relationship of their brothers and sisters in love with one another and with the Father. Mission Fellowship, does that describe our church? Does that describe what we are to one another? Or are we just attendees that come and go? See, the reason he chose us and the reason he predestined us is not only to know his love, but to be holy and blameless. That word holy there is a very important word. It definitely means free from sin, but the holy here that he means actually harkens back to the Hebrew word kadash, which means set apart set apart for a specific service. What are we set apart for? Well, first we're set apart to make known the gospel of the third blessing, which is that we are redeemed and forgiven. The church is to be the place where the gospel of God's redemption and his salvation and his forgiveness through his son is preached loudly and pointedly and purposefully. Not only here in our gathering, but as we scatter as salt into the world, we bring the flavor of the gospel with us. And he says that we have, in verse 7, redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The word redemption means to be purchased off of the slave block of sin. We serve the Exodus God who redeemed his people Israel and that he brought them out of slavery. And God wants to do the same for you and me. He wants to not only free us from the penalty of sin that we deserve, the wrath of God, because we are unholy and unrighteous and unjust, 
but he also wants to free us from the bondage to sin. The same work of grace in the Christian causes not only justification, but also sanctification, that we begin to be set apart for a purpose. What is that purpose? To be nice and exist in the Christian subculture? Listen to Caleb? No. We might do that, and that's okay, but the purpose of the Christian is to be set apart, to be holy and blameless, to speak and preach the truth that a world is dying because it's in rebellion against Christ and it needs to repent and leave behind its sin and step into the free gift of grace that Jesus Christ bought on the cross with his blood. If that's you today, if you are sitting here going, man, am I redeemed? Am I forgiven? Can God even forgive me for the things I've done or the person I've been? The answer of the Bible is absolutely yes, but you must bow the knee to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You must bow the knee to the king, not because he's a forceful authoritarian king who wants you to do his bidding, but because he has a plan to set you apart, to be holy and blameless, and to understand his love, the love of the Father. If that's you today, come talk to me at the end of service. I want to talk with you about what it is to walk with Christ and be a follower of him. And this sacrifice of Christ allows us to step into relationship with the Father. Without redemption and forgiveness, we can't know the love of the Father. We can't be adopted as sons. But when we do, it sets us apart to be holy and blameless and to speak of his gospel, to preach it, but also as the church to do this, to reveal his will to the world. To reveal his will to the world. You see, most of us stop at the gospel of salvation as his purpose. That Jesus' whole purpose is to save me. That is the narcissistic, individualistic, consumeristic American gospel. That the whole reason for God's entire plan is so that I might get to heaven when I die. Let's read what it actually is. Verse 9 making known to us, blessing us. Not, not like the Ephesians who couldn't figure out the mysteries, but he's made known to us the mystery of his will. Look at verse 9. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To do what? To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. We have been blessed as the church, the assembly of the firstborn, because we know his will. And what is his will? Yes, it is to save every one of you and every one of the people in the world that want to be part of his church. But it is also more than that. It's unity, that all things would be reconciled in Christ. The unity of all things in Christ is the dominant theme of the letter to the Ephesians. And I would even submit to you that it's the dominant theme of the overall story of the Bible. That Paul is stating that the reason Jesus died is not just that I can be saved from my sins. That is part of it. But it's not just that. The reason that Christ died was to remove the division that came at the fall. You see, in the Garden of Eden, God walked with his people. Heaven and earth were one and the same. And they didn't have to know that they were enrolled in the spiritual realms because it was present with them. God was right in front of Adam and Eve. 
But when mankind sinned and said, we don't want to follow you, we don't, we don't trust you, it's split apart and heaven and earth have never been together again. And it took the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to start to bring that reconciliation back together. And this mystery of understanding that God's whole point is to restore the world to unity with himself and with each other was slowly but surely revealed throughout the, New Te- the Old Testament. But it wouldn't become clear until the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That through the sacrifice of God's Son, we can be forgiven and brought back into relationship with the Father. And so it's not simply about what happens to me when I die. It's about the fullness of the biblical narrative that God is trying to bring all things united under him and under his Son. And this fact that was hidden has now been revealed. And this is what Paul is calling the church at Ephesus to display to the world around them. This is how they do battle, that they understand and apply these truths and these blessings in their life. Not just mentally, but in actual life. One commentator puts it this way. He has shown us in Christ and in the church the beginnings of his master plan to restore the cosmos to himself and to the harmony lost through rebellion and consequent alienation. Let's look at chapter 3, and we'll see how Paul puts it there. Turn with me to chapter 3, verse 8. I'm almost done here. Chapter 3, verse 8. Here's what Paul says. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What's that? That's the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. That Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin and to reconcile us to himself. And then he says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the assembly, the local body, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, we, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Paul preaches so that the mystery of the good news might be made known. And Paul was a church planner. He then established out of the people that accepted that gospel and walked in it, churches in local places. You'll notice if you read the New Testament that when Paul establishes a church, he doesn't go back to the same area and work outside the church to evangelize. Let me say that again. When Paul goes back to an area where he planted a church, he doesn't then go outside the church to evangelize. He works within the church to build up the church to, Ephesians 4, equip the saints that they then become the gospel as a live action movie to the world around them. That by seeing the way that they relate and love one another, the mystery of God's desire to unify all things under him becomes a reality. We, the church, are the heavenly temple that the world goes to so that they might see a preview of the unity that is to come.
Do they get that preview here at Mission Fellowship? Here are the questions I want to end with today in application. First, to anyone here today that has not accepted the love of the Father, I want to ask you, why not? Why not? Do you have a mischaracterization of God? Do you think he wants to use and abuse you? The God of the Bible is not waiting for you to be good enough or to clean up your act. He simply wants you to confess that you've rebelled against him and that you desire relationship with him and that you want him to be your father. His son paved the way through his blood on the cross and you have the ability today, don't harden your heart any further, you have the ability today to reach out to the father and say, I accept your free gift of grace. Adopt me as your child. If you want to do that with somebody, I'm happy to do it with you in the back and pray with you during worship. But you can do it right where you're seated, right now. I hope that you will take that free gift of grace today and not put it off any longer. Secondly, to those of us that call mission home, or maybe you're a visitor here today, but you're a believer, I want to ask you this question. How are you participating in the preview of heaven to the world around you? How are you participating in the preview of heaven to the world around you? As salt scattered throughout the world and together as a city on a hill, we are called to preview heaven's unity to the world around us. We are called to preview the effects of the gospel to the world around us. So I want to ask us today, for each of us individually, we have to ask this question. Are my attitudes, my words, and my actions reflecting the Father God that we have looked at this morning that is willing to lay down his life through his Son for others? Are my attitudes, words, and actions speaking of the gospel truth? And are my attitudes, words, and actions contributing to unity and uniting all things under Christ? Or are they causing division and dissension? We each must do deep, dark heart work today. Because I believe that myself and every one of us here We are accountable for this question. How are we doing individually and together in giving a preview of heaven to the world?